This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Norman Lau, and we have yet another fantastic show for all of our red shirts out there in Trek FM land. With me, as always, we have our very own Mr. A. Taz, Mr. A2Z, Jeffrey Harlan. How are you, Jeff? I am doing good. Uh, just popping in between the centuries, uh, passed right over the Romulan War uh, this last time in uh, you know, took a little bit of a glimpse at it. You know what Jeff brought us back? He brought us back, like, very vital intel. Romulan weapons have limited range. That's a very important thing to know. And thank you, Mr. Atos, for bringing us that. <laughs> and back with us is our chief sound engineer, Chief Ken Tripp. Welcome back, Ken. How are you? I am doing well, fellas. I am super stoked for this episode. I want to start it off by saying... General quarters, general quarters, all hands to battle stations. This is not a drill. All division officers, chiefs, and standard orbiters report readiness status to CIC. Mr. Lau, take us out. That's so official. I'm so pumped. That Oh, my gosh, you just got me so pumped. That's, that's awesome. Well, as you can tell, we have advertised a little bit of this on the Babel Conference. We have a little bit of a tone going on here right now in the show. And tonight, for all of you, we're going to be talking about probably one of the most beloved episodes in the original series. It's always hit the top 10 list, and in many cases, it's hit the top five list amongst fans. And we are going to be discussing Spock's brain. No, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to see if anyone was listening out there, (laughs) including my own co-hosts. Now, we're going to be talking about Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror is, quite frankly, I think it's like, like one of the most popular episodes in Star Trek, especially in the original series, for a variety of reasons. And we're going to get to that in a moment. And I just wanted to let everyone know that we have a couple of really special things that we're going to do here on the show. And towards the end of the show, we're going to be announcing the winner of the what I'd like to call the NX01 Trivia Challenge. I made a pretty substantial flub in the previous episode uh, concerning the NX01 and its tour of duty. And we had a couple of great entries in the Babel Conference, correct entries that corrected me. So we're going to be announcing the winner of that contest at the end of the show. And also, Ken has our very first stump, Mr. Atos. So please stick around, and we are going to be announcing that question also uh, towards the end of the show. But let's get back to the topic at hand, and that is Balance of Terror. Ken, when we were discussing what we wanted to do for future shows, this is one of the topics that you really wanted to talk about. So I would love for you to take us through this from the very beginning. What inspired you 
to talk about this particular topic and the inspiration for Balance of Terror, which was the very famous and also beloved World War II movie, The Enemy Below. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So what, what got me going on this is when I started listening to Trek FM and they were talking about certain subjects and what they wanted to talk about, I had recently downloaded the movie Enemy Below to watch, and I, it had nothing to do with Star Trek. And when I watched the movie for the first time, I was just totally engrossed in it. You know, I'm a Navy guy. I, I, love, I love those types of films. And I said, man, this is very familiar. There is a lot of things very familiar with this. And then throughout time, you know, you read um, Mark Cushman's These Are the Voyages and others, you see that, um, you know, boy, I guess, you know, Ken Tripp was not the first guy to realize that they pretty much took the plot point by point from the enemy below for Balance of Terror, with a few exceptions and things that were added in there. So that's what, that's what I really wanted to discuss, because I thought that in the timeline that Star Trek's Balance of Terror was made, there was, there was a, a, an awful lot of submarine movies, but I didn't really see the connection to other movies that people talked about. You know, but I definitely saw it in this one. So that that's what drove me to to drive this topic. And I thought it'd be a lot of fun because, you know, we, we talk about a lot of um, cool subjects and we've had a lot of fun on the show. This one in particular kind of, you know, starts talking about Star Trek in terms of, of what they could take from, I guess, a genre that was very common back then and how they could improve it in many ways, too. So you can say they took it, but you can also say they improved it. Now, for the show, I just wanted to let everyone know that we're going to be discussing Balance of Terror as it applies to how it was inspired by the enemy below, because I think that's very, uh, it's a very specific point that we need to make because at Standard Orbit, we're not just a, in, you know, an episode review show. You know, we want to take it from different angles. We want to see what we can bring to our audience from an alternative perspective. We would like to see what we would like to bring to our audience from an alternative perspective. So the enemy below is probably one of the most direct influences that I've probably ever seen in Star Trek. And there's so much of the concept that was borrowed, I guess is the best word. Not directly lifted, because you're right, Ken, there were a couple of differences. But Jeff, when you, when you watch The Enemy Below, because we all researched this before we got into the show, were you looking at The Enemy Below specifically for the comparisons or did you allow yourself just to appreciate it for what the movie brought you and then kind of let it kind of, I don't know, spin you around back to the balance of terror? Well, I was trying to just kind of appreciate the movie for what it was, but it's so similar on so many levels that uh, I, I just kept getting reminded of balance of terror continually as I was watching it. I mean, some of it, it was right down to some of the dialogue. There was a, some of the comments that uh, the um, German submarine captain was making that were very similar to what the Romulan commander was saying about Kirk. You know, uh, just to make sure that our listeners are on board with the tone and the context of what we're saying, I just want to go through a little bit of a, a, a short synopsis of what The Enemy Below was. Um, many original series fans know the plot of Balance of Terror, but a lot of them may not know that it was a derivative of The Enemy Below. So here's a little quick glimpse of what that story was. Now, during the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II, 
Two equally able captains on opposing sides square off in a life-and-death game of tactical maneuvering. That's really important because that really is the tone of Balance of Terror. American Captain Morell, played by Robert Mitchum, brilliantly, when you watch this film, and you have to watch this film, he was amazing in it, helms the destroyer USS Haynes while his Nazi counterpart, Von Stolberg, played by just the amazing Kurt Jurgens. I mean, you just can't get past how amazing he is. He commands a German U-boat and has both men follow their orders. They push their crews. And this is, this is probably something that now you are starting to understand uh, if you're a fan of Balance of Terror. Pushing their crews to greater lengths to achieve victory over the course of the intense battle, a respect develops among the enemies. So when you hear this synopsis and you're a fan of the show, now you start to understand, okay, yes, I understand how this is influencing Balance of Terror. So... Ken, you were there was a the great point in here in our notes where you're talking about how the movies and uh, especially the World War II movies in the 1950s and 1960s centered around submarine warfare and modern movies uh, to this day with films like Hunt for Red October and K-19 The Widowmaker have this specific type of architecture where there is this tactical maneuvering that's happening, a respect of the talents that are happening on the respective bridges of both uh, both combatants. Um, why did you bring this specific point up in regards to balance of terror and the enemy below? Because you know, when you when you look at the plot points of 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 these movies, it is it's you, I like the tactical maneuvering, and I think we use sophisticated terms in the military like cat and mouse, because um, that's 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 a lot of what it is, where you have two ships, two equally talented commanders, and who screws up first, really, which wins it, right? And that, that has a lot to do with, with this movie. Um, in the plot of The Enemy Below, what you're, really, what you're talking about is, is, a, is a vessel that allows to hide underwater. Um, technology is able to semi-locate it, but not directly locate it. And the other craft, which is completely exposed, but has, in theory, more firepower than the other. So... You, you take that into the Star Trek realm, and here you have a ship that refracts light uh, and creates a cloaking device. Um, it's smaller, it's more maneuverable, and then you have the Enterprise, which is larger and arguably more powerful, even though the, um, the Romulan ship has, has a heck of a weapon when fired, but it has limitations to its weapons. Uh, it, it becomes a, a great, I guess, um, story point where both captains are now locked into using their technology, their experience, and their doubts, and their, 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 their fear of failure in order to go back and forth and, and take on each mission, right? And in both cases, which I find really, really compelling about the plots, both captains are doing it because that's their job and what they have to do, but not at all is it the case of something that they want to do. And in the architecture of what we're talking about, and this cat and mouse game, there's a lot of similarities to movies that you've seen in like Wing Commander, The Last Starfighter, the asteroid scene in The Empire Strikes Back, where the the hero ship is trying to hide from, or not necessarily the hero ship, but one ship is trying to hide from another ship in in terms of uh, trying to gain the advantage, trying to figure out tactically to try and outmaneuver their opponent. Um, Jeff, is that something that, when you were watching The Enemy Below, were you extrapolating that? Because 
you and I are both really large fans of science fiction. We both love The Last Starfighter. As a matter of fact, I'm wearing my Starfighter shirt right now. And is this something, it's, it's hard to kind of like look backwards in a way because we're, we have all of this, this library of information, you know, like Empire Strikes Back was what, 1980? And we're looking at a movie mm-hmm. from the 1950s. Do you, I mean, it's like one obviously had to influence the other and obviously the enemy below influenced Balance of Terror. So when you watch it, is it something like, wow, I've seen that before? Or do you take it from like, oh, that's where it came from? Yeah, it was, I I knew that um, Enemy Below came out several years before Balance of Terror came out. And so clearly it was an influence. And these other movies, they had very similar uh, aspects to them. Clearly that's also an influence. I mean, this, this movie is just really incredible to watch. Even today, it holds up very well. It's a very entertaining movie. And I can see where all these other uh, films, they took that as their inspiration. You know, I think the probably the biggest similarity that I saw between The Enemy Below and Balance of Terror was the weariness of the commanders. Neither one of these commanders were, I can't wait to decimate my enemy. I can't wait to go in there and blow him out of the sky or blow him out of the water or blow him out of space. What I loved about the similarities were you had these two very well-educated experienced yet weary commanders. And I found that so compelling to watch because, especially in Kurt Jurgen's case, because his character and the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror, were they were tired of not just the war, but the reason why they were warriors. Ken, what did you think about that? Yeah, you, you hit a great point. And, you know, I think there's there's a part when you know, you're when you're in the service yourself and, and it's like you want to test your skills, you want to hone your skills, and you want to get in, into the fray. And then as time goes on and you, you, you're you slogging it out day by day, year after year, time goes by, it gets it gets very, very old. And if you look at Mark Leonard's character as the Romulan commander, he was at that point, right? He had been part of many campaigns, it's obvious. Uh, he's testing the the strength of the Federation uh, he's doing it because the Praetor wants to know if they're strong enough to take on the Federation and start another war. And that's that's a horrible burden because if he wins, he loses. He knows if he makes it back and he's successful that it, it's going to bring on war. On the other hand, you have Captain Kirk who's trying to figure out um, should he disobey orders, cross into the neutral zone, and and take this enemy out to show that we need to, we, you know, I need to destroy another ship, another vessel, take life in order to preserve life. And when you look at the enemy below, it's the same thing. These guys, like I said in my, my earlier um, little spiel there, was that they were professionals. They did not like the job they had to do, but they had to do it. And they were forced into it. And they were going to do it to their utmost but that element of being tired, of being respectful, of knowing and being very cognizant of the, of the stakes that are involved. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it, you take it from driving your car and you have the lives in that car uh, are in your hand when you're driving. And sometimes we take that for granted. We'll take it into a military uh, scenario where, you know, one wrong maneuver, just like in a car. But in this case, somebody's trying to take you out, too. It just doubles, triples that amount of pressure. 
And that weariness plays very, very well because it makes them seem very realistic and very human. This isn't Rambo. This isn't Commando. This is real, I guess, impact viewing of people's lives put in very, very um, extraordinary circumstances that they wouldn't ordinarily be in except for the, for the positions that they have. And it's a, it, it sends a very powerful message. It humanizes both, I think, both the movie and the TV show. You know, when at this stage in the game, in the first season of the original series, we were exposed to a lot of, you know, boldly going and meeting new aliens and, and seeking out new civilizations. But for some reason, this particular episode was very grounded in a mono mano type of situation, that type of architecture and storytelling, where what we were dealing with was with um, the, the the neutral zone. We, we learned a little bit of the history of that. We learned a little bit of the history of the atomic wars of 100 years previous, and now we're going into the Enterprise era, you know, of 2151. And uh, we learned a little bit more about that war. We never really got to it uh, in the fourth season, but we were teased about it uh, in a couple of the episodes there with the Romulan drone program. So, and I, Jeff, I know you're a student of history, so when you saw that map of the neutral zone come up. And then when Spock was talking about how the treaty was, I guess it was addressed in a certain way over like primitive radio waves. How did, how did you translate that? Like, what did that mean to you? And what did it mean to, um, how did that touch you as a historian of Star Trek? And did it make sense to you uh, the way they described it, especially the way that Spock described it? Because, you know, as a Vulcan, he had probably a little bit more experience in these historical records. The thing that I found interesting was that they, they established that no one had ever seen a Romulan. It was all part of one of the subplots of the episode with the uh, um, the revelation that the Vulcans and the, the Romulans looked just like each other. And for that to happen, they had to, they had to have this where nobody knew that the Romulans looked like the Vulcans. So they have this thing where the, the Vulcans, or I mean the, uh, the Romulans, had signed this treaty over subspace radio um, or, you know, however they, they called it in the episode. Um, they didn't really specify too many details, but they made it clear that we were in communication with each other. We understood each other's languages, but we never saw each other face to face. And I think that added to the mystery of the Romulans as well. You know, we understood them from their tactics in battle. We understood a little bit of them from their language and the communications that we had, but that was all very limited and so they were still uh, just a very nebulous threat, even 100 years after this war that we had had. So these were a couple of the similarities that we, I mean, there were a lot of similarities to The Enemy Below. And obviously it influenced the writing of Balance of Terror. And obviously it influenced Gene Roddenberry in some way and the writers, you know, for this episode. But I think that even more so, what makes this episode so special are some of the new ideas that they've actually presented. One of them, Ken, that you actually wrote down was the the introduction, and it still boggles my mind that it's actually in this episode, the introduction of bigotry and a form of racism towards Spock in this episode. So could you tell me a little bit more about Commander Stiles? Was it Commander Stiles? Lieutenant Stiles. That's correct. Uh, Lieutenant Stiles, that's right. Lieutenant Stiles. Yeah, navigator. Yes, mm -hmm. and... There is a lot of history that happened with Styles, especially with his family and how 
all of this was built up and repressed and it just came out in this episode. And for Star Trek, for the show that has always been about diversity and fairness and tolerance, I found this really interesting that you had a character on there on the bridge behaving in such a manner. So what did you think about that when you saw that? And and how did you react to it in terms of being a Star Trek fan? Great question. I think the reaction is twofold. One, you're shocked and surprised that this could exist in the 23rd century, but you're also, I guess, very elated in how it was dealt with by Captain Kirk as well. So even though he had this trait, it was not a tolerated trait. It was not an accepted trait. And it wasn't something that was um, allowed to fester in terms of being on the bridge, being an officer and setting the example. So I, I, you know, you take these stories and you say, okay, what is the background of what this writer is trying to get across to us here with Mr. Stiles? And the way I tried to relate this in my, my own head, my own head canon, mechanically inclined. Is that the right way of saying it? Maybe? I don't know. We, we, we finally use that word in a sentence. Um, Canonically. 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 Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So the way I I kind of envisioned this was, you know, when you're part of a family and and you're sitting, you know, on on grandpa's knee and he's telling you about, you know, the great World War II. Well, you know, in the Stiles household, it was, it was his uncle or his grandfather or whomever telling him stories, you know, these horrible stories about the war with the Romulans. The the, the enemy that was never seen, uh, the destruction that was caused by it, um, the people and the friends that he lost. And I could see that when you have an unseen enemy, something you don't understand, something that's in the darkness of space in this great void um, that has brought um, pain and suffering to somebody you love, even though it, you know it happened a hundred years before. So I think if they had made that a little bit shorter, like maybe 30 or 40 or 50, it could have been a little bit more reasonable. But I took it as, you know, this was something that that the writers wanted to, I guess, have this living inside him since he was a little kid and and showing that anger. And here he is faced with, um, for the first time, you know, this enemy that brought this horror to his family and his lineage and sees what they look like and turns over and looks at Mr. Spock. And, you know, I will say, too, it's interesting now that the show Enterprise kind of picks up on you know, that human Vulcan dynamic in a way, too, because, you know, in in Enterprise, there is a lot of, I don't know if the right word is prejudice, but um, I guess mistrust, distrust, frustration with the Vulcans. So it kind of all comes out in this episode. So it was was interesting how Enterprise pulled that in. Yeah, and and the tension, that's right, and and pulled it back in. Uh, So it made it seem, after seeing Enterprise, a little bit more plausible that there could have been that kind of reaction. But, uh, you know, initially when you think of the Star Trek universe, you think we evolved past that. But, um, you know, when it hurts your family, and as they say, you know, people are very tolerant of things until it impacts you directly in a negative way. And it impacts one's psyches. And that might be something that we'll never evolve out of. Well, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And and luckily for us here on Standard Orbit, we have one of the co-hosts for... Warp 5 and Jeff, and that's a great point, and I'd like to ask you that, Jeff. It's like, do you think that in Enterprise there could have been an opportunity there, or are we not seeing how they're laying the foundation down for this type of Vulcan bigotry that's happening that has withstood the test of time? Because as Star Trek fans, 
we've always believed that you know that that Star Trek is a mission of tolerance and it's a mission of bettering ourselves as the human race, making ourselves better from uh, today than yesterday. But let's take a look at the reality of the situation. And I want to quote exactly what happened on the bridge in, in um, Balance of Terror. It's one of my favorite quotes, actually, because it actually admits on camera that bigotry still exists in the 23rd century. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. That's what Kirk says to Stiles directly. But he actually says there's no room for it. Bigotry. He doesn't say that it doesn't exist. He's just saying that there's no room for it here. So 100 years ago, during the height of the Romulan War, there was something happening. And I know you know this subject very well because you've read the novels. So somewhere along the line, the Romulan War really has deeply affected the Styles' history to the point where this bigotry has lasted for over 100 years. So what do you think about that? Extrapolate that for us, if you will. Yeah, the... There's a, a lot, um, especially in the novels and the other books. They're also in the uh, the Federation book. Uh, they have some of the propaganda posters from the Romulan War uh, with like a picture of a Starfleet officer and their shadow is casting this alien shape and it says anyone could be a Romulan spy. Uh, you know, a lot of distrust. And this is shortly coming off of 100 years of very tense uh, relations with the Vulcans. And I'm sure the bad blood from that uh, took a very long time to go away. And some families, it could have been propagated, like with Styles, uh, they didn't trust the Vulcans, and they hated the Romulans. And then when they find out that the Romulans and the Vulcans look just like each other, boom, uh, the two of them just collided. And I actually, I don't see uh, a, a real problem with uh, um, someone... Uh, family holding that kind of a grudge for a century because I see it uh, in even in today's world. Um, there's some people that, uh, you know, they're, they're holding grudges from wars and uh, other conflicts that go back decades or even 100, 150 years. Um, and some, some even much further back than that. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, it's a part of human nature and it's not going to easily go away in the next couple hundred years but the point that uh, we see on uh, with Kirk saying leave the bigotry in your quarters is that yeah there might still be around but it's not something that is really uh, tolerated and it's something that is extremely frowned upon at least by Kirk that's a really good point and it's funny that uh, Styles is sitting in that particular seat because that's usually a seat that's uh, designated for Chekhov. So in the first season, we saw a lot of all these pre-Chekhov characters that actually gave us a lot of opportunity for some great storytelling. So where Styles was concerned, I found that very refreshing that there was a little bit more of what I thought was a little bit more real humanity being addressed there because I don't think... I don't think that balance of terror, at least for me, would have worked as well if there wasn't some really overdramatic factor that was happening. And I really like the tension that he brought to Spock because it, it helped resolve the situation at the end and it really kind of illuminated more the tensions that were still there from the, the era where the, um, the Starfleet, or at least the officers in Starfleet, weren't as comfortable with Vulcans. And then all of a sudden, now you have an enemy that looks like Vulcans, and oh gosh, now what do you do? So it's, it's, it's nice that 
you have these touchstones influencing each other, if not enhancing each other. But dealing with that, that bigotry wasn't the only really important point that was happening in this episode. Now, Ken, you also said, and I think this is really important also, because you are or have served in the Navy, you're dealing with uh, an issue here in Balance of Terror regarding women in combat and uh, in a certain role of leadership. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Why did you bring this up as a point? Because when this when this was made back in 1966, uh, in that timeline, it was unheard of to think that there would be women on a warship, never mind couples on a warship. And I know the Enterprise is a ship of exploration, but let's be honest, it's both, uh, depending on the circumstance. And so that was groundbreaking. And it's very easy, I think, when you watch TV and you're a casual observer and you're just looking at... Uh, you know, the women and men walking around the ship, well, you know, it's, you've heard Nichelle Nichols tell her story a thousand times about how important it was that she stay on the bridge and Martin Luther King and all that. Well, you know, the Navy didn't implement women on warships until 1993. Ken, could I interrupt okay. you for one second? I just want to make a point because this is really important for our listeners to know. What you're talking about is seeing women in combat positions in 1966. Right, 1967, in that, in that first season. So it's not looking at it from a historical point of view. It's looking at it from a broadcast point of view. So I just want to make that clear when we're putting this in context. So please go ahead. Yeah. So if you think that, that women weren't put on, on, on warships, they were on non-combatant ships, um, uh, you know, fuelers, things like that, uh, up until 1993. What a, what a huge leap that was. What a progressive thought process that was. And then also, you know, you, you could argue, too, I mean, we still have a lot of issues in, in the fleet today with fraternization and, and things along those lines. But, you know, they completely um, are able to, we're able to evolve past that. We're able to have relationships. We're not, it, it doesn't affect the chain of command. We are able to have a relationship. And in this case, you know, they were just about to get married um, on the show. And... And, and still carry on their responsibilities. And that shows true evolution, if you, if you ask me, because in today's world, that's, that's very difficult. Now, we're growing and we're getting there, but we're not there. And I think if you were to ask what a Navy commander would want today, and he saw that episode, he'd point right at it and say, this is, what it, this is exactly how it should be. And it's getting there. Yes, at the beginning of the episode, we saw, I believe it was um, a phaser crew commander or phaser crew mm -hmm. leader, Tomlinson, and Angela, right. was it Martin, Jeff? Yeah, Martin. They were about to get married, and I think it was a really nice, it was a nice tone that they set at the beginning of the episode where Kirk was saying, like, you know, at the, um, you know, from the very first wooden ships, uh, one of the great uh, opportunities or one of the great uh, privileges of a captain was to be able to bring people together in holy matrimony. I thought that was really interesting. There was a chapel there, but I think it was a chapel of a lot of different faiths. But the point was that you actually had these two people that were serving together, they were able to be who they were as people in that relationship, but they were also able to function in terms of their status as crewmen on the Enterprise. And obviously they were using them as a plot point because, and I'm not sure if I need to say spoiler alert here, but I will say spoiler alert, Tomlinson was the casualty of this episode. And... I think it was really important that they showed this because, you know, there are no certainties when they were out there. 
And believe it or not, at this time, it wasn't a red shirt. You know, he was wearing command gold. You know, he's part of the phaser crew, which is also a really cool thing. And I'm going to digress here for a second. This is one of the few episodes that I remember where they actually showed the different crews aboard different areas of expertise on the Enterprise. Like, you weren't firing phasers by just pushing a button. You were firing phasers by commanding a crew to get the phaser battery ready to fire. And I thought that was really, just like they were doing in the Enemy Below. You wanted to see how a commander was affecting the structure and the course of this battle from the entire crew's perspective and how they were filtering the command decisions. So I thought that was really neat. So I know, Jeff, you wanted to talk about a little bit about um, how, you know, just in terms of the relationship, how or why this was important to show uh, in this particular episode. Well, um, like like Ken was saying, it, it this is 30 years before we have women serving on uh, Navy warships. I mean, that's a huge leap ahead uh, of where things were in the real world. Uh, and also, one thing I found interesting was that they have a chapel on the ship. In the military, we have, you know, base chapels, uh, ship chapels, and it's a non-denominational space where everybody can use the this, this space, uh, and we all just share it. Um, and I and also, beyond that, this establishes that, yeah, there still is religion at this point on Star Trek. Um, later on in, uh, in the production of the series, you know, that kind of, the the focus shifts away from that, but that's that's something that I found interesting on this as well. Um, but the, uh, uh, that, that relationship was uh, very interesting because these people can still be professionals while having this relationship working together in the same part of the ship. And that's just a, a very difficult thing to do sometimes. Uh, I saw people that, uh, when I was in the military that, uh, were having relationships, uh, and in, in the same office and we would keep them working in different parts of the office so that they wouldn't directly be working together. But here you have these two working directly together, and that that was also interesting to me. And I thought it was really touching at the end, you know, when when Kirk finds Angela in, a, in the chapel, and, and obviously she's grieving for Tomlinson. And he just said, you know, it makes no sense, but you have to believe that this happened for a reason. You know, it's, what else can he say? You know, he, he, he has to be able to toe that line where we're out here to better and further humanity. And unfortunately, he was caught in something that we should never have been in in the first place. He, you know, he was out here to be an explorer with us, you know, because that's it. It humanizes the episode so strongly because you're seeing a relationship broken in, in probably in a situation that wasn't as acceptable in the 1960s where you're, you're having a working relationship on a military vessel. It just, I mean, Ken, I know that you're, you know, you, you brought this up before. That's just something that wasn't, it wasn't um, as exposed, you know, as we see it here in Star Trek. I mean, I think this is something that was technically quote unquote groundbreaking for the time, having this type of relationship on a ship. It wasn't that, that was, that was really why I brought it up because like I said, if, if 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 you're not a student of history, or if you're, you know, you, you watch Star Trek for many of the other reasons versus you know maybe some of the operational or, or type military type stuff, which I completely understand and respect, you just might not be aware of just you know how progressive that was, that thought process was, and 
you know, it's it's the other thing I want to say too is when when she, when she was being, I guess, consoled a little bit. You know, the last line she said was, "I'll be all right." You know, she had a job to do. She had a duty to perform. So she was grieving, but she still, you know, it wasn't like, the, you know, well, you, you get 30 days leave, you get to do whatever. Nope, you got to get back to work. Um, you know, this is this is an operational vessel and you signed up for this. This is the risk you take if you want to take on a relationship on top of all those responsibilities. Uh, you know, it just shows that 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 um, Tomlinson, that, um, I'm sorry, Tomlinson was a guy, that she was... Um, was a very strong individual in her own right and could could do her job. And they didn't make it, you know, it, it could have just as easily have been her that died. And it would have sent a very different message, I think. Um, and, and so by going in this direction, I thought it was risky. I thought it was um, a, a great move. And I thought it was great storytelling. I, I really, really enjoyed it. and I, And I liked it for all those reasons, which is, you know, why, you know, we, we tease it for being so close to the enemy below. But it was very much its own episode, and there was a lot of things encapsulated in this episode that truly made it Star Trek. And to me, you know, really pulled in, uh, I guess, had me vested in the show. I was, I was very vested in this episode, and, um, and it wasn't the battles. It was the storyline that, that we just talked about more than any other piece of it. And I agree. I think that when you watch this episode, when you watch Balance of Terror, and then if you have the opportunity to watch the enemy below and take a look at those and, and transpose one on top of the other, you'll see that there are a lot of very similar architectural points storytelling wise. But I really do think that the, the real value that you find here in this episode is are the different ideas um, like we've listed before, especially for me, I think that being able to show that the enterprise is in one way, a political situation because they were under orders to do a certain thing in the neutral zone. They weren't allowed to engage. They had to follow treaty. They had to follow all these different diplomatic checks and balances. They had, at least Kirk was wrestling with, what do I do? Do I do the right thing or do I do the, what's expected of me from Starfleet to do? If there's, I, I, I find myself comparing him to Archer a lot in this situation because he's in a, I think he's in a, a very unknown dynamic right now. He's never experienced a Romulan before. He doesn't understand the history per se. He is at the border of their side of the neutral zone. He is chasing an enemy that if they don't defeat them, will report back to the Romulan Praetor that the Federation is weak. It's all on him. The pressure is uncalculable for a commander that has to basically hang life and death in the balance of his entire crew based on every decision that he makes. And I think that stands out as something that's fantastic for Kirk, but it also kind of goes back to not just Robert Mitchum's character in The Enemy Below, but Kirk Jurgen's character, because these characters are weary of war. They don't want to be warriors for war's sake. I think that's something that we still need to talk about a little bit. These are two characters that don't, they don't revel in war. They want to avoid war probably at all costs because they know that in the end, it's only serving one particular agenda. And it's not theirs. 
Do you guys agree with that or not? I agree with that. I think that um, at least from in, in the enemy below, much more from the Germans' point of view, that they were done. Uh, he didn't get it, and, and he idealistically was not aligned. I think one other thing that was very similar between both episodes was how the Romulan commander had the very zealot uh, first officer, as did the uh, submarine commander uh, in, in, in the enemy below, <laughs> that kind of pushed it. So you did see kind of the, the face of both. You saw the the mature warrior doing his job, but not 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 reveling in it. Um, but you saw the person below, who was all about it, you know, and wanted to to, to keep pushing it. So, yeah, Norm, your your point is spot on. I mean, they were both in both cases in both platforms, whether at sea or in space, they were both very very much alone. There was no support coming, and all that burden uh, that they were both facing, not just to do their job for for their countries. But for the for the people that are under their command and what they're responsible for, and you know it played out beautifully. And um, I don't want to steal your favorite moment from the show, but I think it sets you up very nicely uh, for that for that Dr. McCoy moment. Please do. Actually, you know what? Please do. No, Ken. no, do it, man. It's you. You, you even <laughs> you even you said it so well. And uh, and and I don't know, Jeff. I I think you'd agree that uh, no one really does Kirk quite like Norm. <laughs> Well, before we get to that, before we get to that, there is like one thing that I wanted to address, and it's a great note that you put in here, that Balance of Terror was a game-changing episode. It brought structure to the Federation and allowed the audience to grasp that the Federation was very much like the U.S. and Western Europe and had its enemies and politics. It also hit on many subjects that are still debated today. So, Jeff, do you agree with with that note? And and what can we tell our listeners a little bit more about um, how how the structure of what we've seen here in Balance of Terror in terms of the politics and in terms of the, of the military responsibility of the Enterprise, because for us, we always want to believe that the Enterprise is on a mission of peace and exploration. But now you have to deal with the fact that you have the Klingons, the Andorians, the Romulans out there, and we're dealing with a very specific piece of, of military, not just strategy, but military placement with a neutral zone and how we affect that. So... That's a very definite line that this episode is drawing literally on a map as we see all of our outposts that are being attacked by this one particular ship. So did you feel that they wanted to make a specific point that the, not just the Enterprise, but the Federation itself is in fact military? Well, I'm not so sure about the Federation, but definitely Starfleet. Um, Up until this point, all we ever saw the Enterprise doing was exploring and checking out new planets, new life forms, and just kind of going out and seeing what was out there. This is the first time that we saw on any of the Star Treks at the, up to this point that they had military duties on top of that. So it blurred the line between are they a ship of exploration, are they a military ship, and it's kind of hard for some pe- sometimes to kind of uh, take those two and make it work together. I mean, I, I think there's room for both, uh, especially when you uh, take that into the context of some of the inspirations for the show, like the Horatio Hornblower and the explorers of uh, the uh, of that era that those books were set in. And they did a lot of exploring, but they were also military vessels engaged in war, English against the French, etc. And that was just a, a part of the political reality of their time and i think that applies to the enterprise just as much they see themselves primarily as explorers but they also have them uh military aspect to their mission 
And Kirk says that every other episode. It's like, you know, we are on an exploration of peace, but we will defend ourselves if necessary. So I think this was probably that episode that... I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Yeah, I was just... I was reminded of the song by the firm Star Trek and Across the Universe, uh, where... Kirk is on the bridge. He says, we come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. (laughs) It's it's a really fine line that they actually were walking. And especially in the first season, we were trying to establish, are we a military? Are we not a military? What kind of structure are we? We have, we're on a mission of exploration. We have this ship that has the capability of doing all these different types of analysis, um, bio and all these, uh, you know, bioanalysis and, um, planetary exploration, you have all these scientific teams, but they also beam down with phasers and weapons of war and the ability to destroy a planet if necessary, but they never really push that. Not up until this point, because the whole point of Balance of Terror was that the Enterprise was one of all of the, I believe it was 12 Constitution-class ships that were launched for the five-year voyage for Starfleet and for the Federation that were supposed to go out there and explore uncharted territories and to boldly go. But what do you do if you encounter what you know, at least what we know now, as being one of your established combatants or enemies? Because that's really what Balance of Terror was. It wasn't like they've just... They stumbled upon something that was unknown and they tried to make some type of peaceful negotiation with it and it didn't go well. No, these were, like Stiles says, like these were Romulans. They are begging for war. And Kirk, being his his first exposure to it, what do you do? He does his duty. And this brings us back to what you said, Ken. His duty was something that weighed on him so heavily, it felt like, it felt very much like the scene that that Captain Pike and the doctor had in the cage where Pike was like, I'm tired of having these responsibilities. I'm tired of making these life and death decisions for over 400 crewmen. And this is probably one of DeForest Kelly's greatest moments in Star Trek, in my opinion. I think that Larry Nemechek might actually agree with me. And this is when Kirk was about to go back on the bridge and make his final decision on how to handle the Romulans. And McCoy said to him, as he puts his hand on his shoulder, in this galaxy, there's a mathematical probability of three million Earth-type planets. And in all the universe, three million, million galaxies like this one. And in all of that, and perhaps more, only one of each of us. Don't destroy the one named Kirk. And I thought that was, I think this is an absolutely fantastic way to end this particular part of the episode. So I loved Balance of Terror. I loved seeing the enemy below. And I think that in the grand scope of things, I think that our audience would do themselves a great service if they actually watched the enemy below and take it from us. There are these great moments in film that help define a period and I think that Ken and I think that Jeff would agree with me that The Enemy Below is one of those. So before we get to our final thoughts, we have a lot of things, a lot of fun things to get to. And the first of them is hailing frequencies. So hailing frequencies open. Hailing frequencies are open. We had some great feedback from the Babel Conference regarding our spoilers that we were going to do, The um, Enemy Below and Balance of Terror. And 
Dennis Costello, who's um, one of our sound engineers here, and uh, he sometimes pops on every once in a while on a podcast. Uh, he was just on recently Metatrex uh, talking with Mike and Zach. But as soon as we advertised that we were going to do this show, he was all over me. He was all over me like <laughs> a cheap 72-degree suit. So, <laughs> And on the Babel conference, he said, and I'd love to hear you guys' feedback on this, Dennis said, one of my favorite things about Balance of Terror is that it's a story where two ships are going head-to-head in battle, and yet there really isn't any quote-unquote villain. The Romulan commander is certainly an antagonist, but over the course of the episode, he becomes a very sympathetic character, and instead of cheering the victory, you mourn his loss at the end. If there is a quote-unquote villain in this episode, it is war itself, war and bigotry, it's interesting to consider that Roddenberry and many of his collaborators were war vets themselves. Perhaps it's because they had been in the situation of having to take real lives in a real war that they were never any cheering in Star Trek over destroying enemy. It was something that, when it had to be done, was done with profound regret. And I hope that this is something that translates into the new series, the new series being 2017. So... What do you guys think about that? I think that he hits a lot of really interesting points here. What do you think, Ken? I think it was very profound. I think I think what Dennis wrote is spot on. And, uh, you know, there's that old saying that uh, no one hates war more than the soldier because they know what's, what's ahead of them. So I think that uh, tying it back to their history, this is just 20 years after World War II. Most of the people in the production, including Gene Roddenberry himself, were involved in that war. And they know it is not something to, um, to glamorize, and that's why I think this episode hits home. And I think Dennis's point is, like I said, it's very profound what he wrote. And it's, um, you know, Dennis, you should write a lot. I, I, I really, you know, I, I look at this quote for quote, and I think this is just something that is, uh, is very telling. And, and you, you, you were very, very clear in how you expressed this, this, this point. And there really wasn't any villain other than war itself and war and bigotry. So yeah, I can't, can't say enough about, about his comment. It's spot on. How about, how about you, Jeff? What did you feel about Dennis's comments here in hailing frequencies? Well, just like Ken, first thing that came to mind for me was that quote from uh, Eisenhower, uh, the, uh, you know, no one hates war more than the soldier. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah. And again, that's, uh, you know, one thing that struck me as well, there really isn't a villain. You can sympathize with the uh, the Romulan commander. He's not some mustache twirling uh, psychotic person off to you know blow up planets or what have you. He's someone who, in a different circumstance, you could see him being the hero of the show. You know, when I was thinking about this episode, I actually I don't know why. And and follow me here, listeners. But it brought me back to The Sound of Music. And this is why. Because in The Sound of Music, Captain Von Trapp of the Austrian Navy, he was being recalled back to war under the Third Reich. It was something that he didn't want to do. He was, he was willing to sacrifice everything not to go back and do that because he knew how good he was at being a captain of a, of a, of a war vessel. He knew what he was capable of because he was decorated time and time again. That brought me back to Kurt Jurgens' character, who, when he was in his private chambers, you know, and with his first officer, all he did there was just lament the fact that the war that he was in was not the war that he wanted to be in. 
He said, there were wars where warriors were grand and the war was just and the cause was righteous. But now all you need to do are turn a few dials, compute a few statistics, and end thousands of lives. He goes, to him, to Kurt Jurgen's character, that is not war. That is not the that is not the role of a warrior. That's just the role of politicians pointing this particular war machine at their enemies. And I thought that was really fascinating to watch. If for anything, listeners, please watch that scene in The Enemy Below because that, if anything, is probably the one true point that transcends both that movie and into what Mark Leonard's performance was doing here in Balance of Terror. I thought that was fantastic. Thank you, Dennis, for such a really interesting, insightful response to um, our question here on the Babel Conference. But now we have another fantastic thing, another fun thing that we're going to talk about. And thank you so much for sticking with us here to the end because I made a mistake. Yes, Norm is capable of making mistakes. I, you know, I, I get things right so often. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. But in the last episode, I made a huge mistake. And as a former host of Warp 5, I should have not made the mistake. Uh, there was a point in the episode where I statistically something wrong about the, the NX-01, and I decided to make a contest of it. So for this contest, on episode 115, it was wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. I made a blunder regarding the tenure of the NX-01. And Ken, before the show, you and I flipped a coin to pick the winner. Mm -hmm. Because whoever entered the Babel Conference on this particular contest had the chance of winning the 365, the original series book by Paula Block. It's a fantastic hardcover book. Uh, if you're an original series fan, you should have it. And if not, this is one of the ways that you can get it through a contest like this. So, drum roll, please. The flip of a coin. And thank you for entering this particular contest and letting me know what I did wrong. Patrick Carlin, you are the winner of the Star Trek, the original series, 365 books. So congratulations. Thank you for telling me what I did wrong. And the answer is, in that episode, I said that the NX-01, uh, the tenure was from 2251 to, 26, to 2261. I was an entire 100 years off. It was 2151 to 2161. And I should have known better. So my gift to you for making that mistake is this book, Thank you for entering, and congratulations for winning the contest. But we have even one more amazing thing before we end the show. And Ken, this is all on you, so please take it away. First of all, Norm, I just want to tell you that um, there is only one Mr. Atos, so don't feel so bad about making a mistake. <laughs> and then secondly, if I had to give a prize for every mistake I make, I would have an empty house inside of a day. <laughs> so I'm, 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 you know, relax about that. But that was awfully <laughs> generous of you. So as you know, everyone, I had put out that we were going to have a little segment called Stump Mr. Ataz. And if you had a question to IM me directly from the Babel Conference, right, uh, from onto my Facebook page. So I was IM'd by a, by a very new host on Trek FM, actually. Now, I won't tell you his names, but his initials are Brendan Che Matala. Hmm. And the question goes like this. In the prime universe, Mr. Ataz, who was promoted to captain faster than anyone in the history of Starfleet? Well, that's a very good question, and that would be from uh, the episode Conspiracy from the first season of Star Trek Next Generation, Captain Trila Scott. 
and you are correct. So, oh my God, did you just pull that from memory? Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh. Okay. So wait, hold on a second. So Brandon, first of all, great question. I'm sorry. Can I got to jump in here? That's fine. I watched. I watched Jeff's reaction this entire time. And it was of stone. It was a calculating <laughs> machine. It was nomad. Like, it wasn't like if you went to play poker against him, Riker wouldn't have a chance. That was unbelievable. I, I, oh, I wish you guys could have seen his face during that question. It wasn't even like, I got this, I got this, I got this. It was just like, bam, I know this. Let's just pump out that information. Unbelievable. I'm sorry, Ken, go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. Hey, that was very Vulcan-like, you know, just like, yeah, as a matter of fact, it was this on this date, and this is that. So that was that was beautiful. Well done, Jeff. I am sorry, Brandon, that um, I don't get to buy you the shirt of your choice on Redbubble, but if anyone can think of a question, and honestly, I do not. I do not broadcast. I do not give him any chance to see any questions that come our way. This will be a total surprise to Mr. Atos and you win, then you can pick out the shirt of your choice on Redbubble, any of the Trek FM shirts, and I will buy it for you. So come on, guys, ladies. Let's, let's, let's get them. There's got to be something. Even if we just make them raise an eyebrow and have to consider it for maybe, oh, three or four seconds, <laughs> I might get you a pair of socks. So let's, let's see what we can do. That was absolutely and utterly amazing. I've never seen anything like that. In my, I mean, the, the level of confidence that came out of that answer was fantastic. And thank you, Brendan, for, for writing in. Please, people, write in to Stump Mr. Atos because that is a bit that we love here. It's going to be fantastic for you to be able to win that particular contest. Ken is good to his word about the shirt there from Redbubble. So, and, and we would love for you to be able to wear some of Trek FM stuff. So we're going to get to that in a little bit. So before we end uh, the show here... I would just like to ask, you know, my esteemed colleagues here on Standard Orbit if they have any final parting thoughts about Balance of Terror or The Enemy Below. Let's start with Mr. Atos, because you're riding high right now on that victory lap uh, for um, not being stumped by Brendan's question. Well, um, first off, I can understand being confused about uh, Angela's last name, um, in this episode, it was Angela Martine, but she showed up again later in the episode Shore Leave, and it was Angela Teller, um, and that was never really explained. I mean, behind the scenes, it was because they added the actress last minute, and they just changed the first name, but the last name didn't get changed on the script in time. But uh, um, another thing I found interesting is the shot from The Enemy Below there's a scene where uh, the submarine fires off a couple of torpedoes. That that exact shot is in the opening credits for the Mirror Universe two-parter on Enterprise. Oh. Oh. And uh, okay. it it's just on there for like about a, a half a second, but you can see a submarine shooting off a couple of torpedoes, and that's that exact shot from uh, The Enemy Below. And then another tie-in back to The Enemy Below is... Uh, there is a two-part story in issue seven and eight of the ongoing Star Trek comic book uh, from IDW in the new timeline, and it's called Vulcan, Vulcan's Vengeance. And in this storyline, the survivors of Vulcan have disguised themselves as Romulan survivors of Nero's ship, and they have stolen what little bit of red matter here has been collected by the Vulcan Science Institute. So they got like about a one-inch sphere of red matter and they take it to Romulus 
on uh, saying that they're going to hand it over to the Romulans with the intention of detonating it and destroying Romulus. But uh, the in this storyline, they drew the Romulan Praetor to look like Robert Mitchum. Interesting, interesting. And you posted that, I think, on the Babel Conference. Yeah, right? I posted a picture of that on the Babel Conference. So what about you, Ken? Any final part, parting thoughts before we um, end well, our I, conversation here? Yeah, first, I, I want to thank you guys for, for, for uh, putting this episode together and, and working with me on this. I, this was something I've wanted to do for a very long time, and uh, I, I think it came off really well, so I really enjoyed speaking about it. It's uh, Like I said, it, it was one of those shows that really solidified my fandom in the series, uh, I started off with Star Trek The Motion Picture and started to kind of go backwards, even though I'd seen Star Trek off and on. That's when I really got hooked in. But this episode was it. This was the one that uh, drew me in. And it had a lot of influence on me and even wanting to join the Navy. So it, it, it's a big deal. And, and the other correlation that I have is I met my wife in the Navy, and she served 21 years on active duty. So while I spent most of my time in the business world and 25 years in the reserve, um, not all 25 years in reserves was mixed. Uh, she did 21 years and, uh, very, very proud of her. And it was, it was a lot, you know, I, I look at that episode and I know that those relationships can work now, definitely different circumstances and we're, weren't in the same unit and all that happy stuff, but, um, stationed together. And, uh, and I think you find a lot of people in the service that find their spouses that way. So there was a couple of personal connections to this episode that I really enjoyed about it. And then, um, on the stump, Mr. Ataz, I just want to ask one follow-up question, Jeff. If I didn't say the prime universe, if I said holistically in Star Trek, what would the answer have been? Well, then that would have been Captain Kirk from the new timeline. That's correct. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page. Look at that swagger, Norm. It's unbelievable. The devil is in the details for sure. The mm -hmm. devil is in the dark is in the details. So <laughs> that, that was a fantastic discussion. And I think that from both of your perspectives, because you both served in our armed forces, that this particular episode probably held a little bit more meaning for you because you were able to project a lot of your own personal experiences into what you were seeing. Um, Ken, especially you, because, you know, we're dealing with quote unquote, you know, the, the, the facsimile of a naval vessel here on in Starfleet and then you being, um, you know, serving in the Navy. But for me, I think that during the course of watching the first season up until this point, what we did see in Star Trek was, again, a lot of um, establishing uh, the experiences and um, the parameters of the unknown, being able to go out there and, you know, just to boldly go again as Star Trek's tenant is, as Cochrane's tenant is to seek out new life and, and new civilizations. But I think for the first time for all of us, everything became grounded in more of this very personalized story between these two commanders, between Kirk and the Romulan commander, and the Romulan captain. And watching the enemy below and taking that into consideration and understanding the the premise of this isn't necessarily a war movie. It's a character study of two men that have the utmost respect for each other because I think that they both respected the fact that they want to preserve life and not take life. They want to be able to preserve the lives of their men and preserve the life of, the, of, of their enemy combatants because in the end, they don't want to be killers. They want to be leaders. And they want to be able to promote the glory of both of their countries and their countrymen, but not at the sacrifice of their own souls. And I think that's the deepest impact that had on me when I was watching it. William Shatner actually 
it was subtle, but it was really a, for, a, just a fantastic performance of what is at risk here? What does he lose if he becomes this instrument for Starfleet, this weapon of war, this commander that just, he just follows orders and not follows his own morality? That's no longer a captain. You know, that's, that's just um, a facilitator for the arm of Starfleet's military. And I think that's a really important thing to take a look at when you watch this episode again or watch this episode for the first time. So I think that there is a lot of that particular essence that still holds true between the enemy below and Balance of Terror. And I think that's just, it's just fascinating to see that there was such a strong influence in that because when you look at Star Trek again for the very first time, the tenant of Star Trek is for the betterment of humanity, how we make ourselves better today than we were yesterday. And I think that that holds true in this particular episode. So, but, and we can go on and on and on because we love talking about this particular philosophy of Star Trek, but, you know, talking about the enemy below and how it affects balance of terror isn't the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here are a few other examples of what we've been talking about on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. Jordy is the one that's like, you know what? No, you're wrong. You're wrong about Data. I'm going to drop a challenge right here, and Data's totally going to step up to the plate, and you're going to get served, Plasky. And that's how LaForge created Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it turned out good, but I mean, he had good intentions. The Orb. The Wadi, a fun-loving race from the Gamma Quadrant, arrive at DS9 eager to play a game with Cisco and the crew, one that appears to be a matter of life and death. All right, so are we moving along, Matthew? Oh, we're moving along. <laughs> Is there any redeeming value? The Ready Room. He's carrying in the lamb chop sock puppet <laughs> saying... She stayed at her post <laughs> while Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> while Charlie Horse ran. <laughs> to the journey! She has a holographic boyfriend that malfunctions. That can mean only one thing. She knows how he malfunctions. <laughs> well, I hear it's common in a lot of guys his age. Commentary, Trek stars. I haven't seen Mean Girls. You haven't seen Mean Girls. I oh know. My God. Everybody wants me to see oh Mean Girls. Oh, my God. Yeah, you have to see Mean Girls. I mean, after yeah. Josie and the Pussycats. Oh, oh how can I, I forget that. Josie and the Pussycats? The 602 Club. I actually like when they bring in the big container for the brain fish at the beginning. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, really it opens mysterious. up and it's, you know, speaking through the... And all the minions that have the, to mop up after it at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah I thought yeah, that was pretty no. funny. All the, it's like a slug trail. Um, you can actually see one of the guys while he's talking, kind of wandering around, mopping up. I was like, yeah. what is that guy doing? Literary tricks. You're totally right that when Atonement was done, I really did feel like um, everybody needed a break. Like a Not Kit Kat that bar? There wouldn't be challenges and obstacles and things, but I wanted the, the next sort of series of adventures that they faced for a while to be more infused with the sense of wonder that sort of underpins all of Trek. Women at Warp. You can always count on DC Fontana to Vulcan things up, and I, I for one, appreciate her for that. Get Vulcan with it. Na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> Na-na-na-na-na-na. Get Vulcan with it. Meta Treks. Don't tell me you haven't wondered what it's like to be Patrick Stewart. Actually, I've wondered, I've often wondered what it's like to be 
the Shat. <laughs> There's no way to know. It's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. <laughs> He's one of a kind. Melodic tricks. But it's basically from a motivation of not treating the audience stupid. You know, treating them that they have dreams, they have imagination, they have hope, they have fear. They have all those things, and the music plays on that. And introducing Saturday Morning Trek, a show about the animated series and all things Trek in the 1970s. Like six episodes counts as a season. This isn't the British, okay? This isn't. This is two seasons of Sherlock. Come on. This isn't Sherlock. Yes, they've been waiting for several years to see more Star Trek, which is like Sherlock, but you know that's neither here nor there. But from there to here is also a good podcast you should listen to. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Mr. Atos, please let all of our listeners know how they can access all the different avenues to Trek FM and how to find Trek FM across subspace and across all of the interwebs. You can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. You know, we had actually an interesting question just today as we were recording this um, for this particular episode, it was on the Babel conference. And I found this really interesting question. I want to bring it up here on, uh, as we're recording, someone asked, what do you get out of supporting the network? What do you get out of your contribution to Patreon? What does it do for you? Because usually at this time of the episode, we start talking about the Patreon program and how we help support the network through this. So there, the three of us have come through and into the network through Patreon and there are a variety of ways that you can support the network through this program. Ken, would you mind letting us know, and would you mind letting our listeners know, especially, and I don't remember who wrote this. It was just something that I read before I, I jumped on the show, but how do we benefit as patrons, and how do our listeners benefit from the patronage that happens through patreon.com? Sure. So let me so let me walk you through it a little bit. So Patreon, it's our online service that allows our listeners uh, to contribute directly to Trek FM, um, in, in contributing to the network, you're not only getting to listen to to the shows, and, and it allows us to support and buy all the um, the equipment that we need, and the the uh, the amount of um, software and, and and bandwidth that goes along with this. It also allows us to keep uh, incredibly talented hosts on your favorite Star Trek podcast for you to listen to. So I, I think it's it's one of the, the the great perks that that we we enjoy from this is that. If you contribute, you get access to the patron zone, right? Where Chris has provided downloads, screensavers, and other items for you to enjoy. If you contribute $15 a month, you can try your hand at podcasting by joining the patrons roundtable twice a month. And this is hosted by Will Wynn and, and Christopher Jones. They're switching back and forth. This is where I really got into it back in, in June of last year with Norm and with Jeff, coincidentally, uh, in, in the first roundtable. So it's, it's an awful lot of fun, and, and you really will be able to, I guess, get a, get a sense. And, and you know what? The, the roundtables are wonderful to listen to for, for all our listeners. And then for $25 a month, you get to become an associate producer for whichever podcast you choose. So every increment from that point on has different perks. So if you go to patreon.com, 
Let me spell that for you. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash TrekFM. Uh, you can see all the incredible perks that, that, uh, that Chris has come up with uh, to help keep the network afloat, keep us on the air, keep us driving. I mean, if you look at the amount of content that is pouring out of Trek.FM, we've got new shows coming out. Uh, we've had several new shows and some of old shows that have been revived recently. So, you know, it's not like this This is a network that's just sitting back. It is always trying to one-up itself. It's always trying to constantly improve. And we need your help to do that. So please uh, become a patron by joining us on patreon.com slash trek.fm. And that's a fantastic way to be able to support us and to to show how much you appreciate what we're doing here for you on Trek FM. Another way of doing it, and this is uh, one of the ways that uh, Ken is going to be able to support one of the future contests to stump Mr. Atos, is through redbubble.com. Our very talented and uh, very passionate Star Trek art director, Aaron Harvey, has created a variety of different uh, designs for you to be able to wear on your fandom, whether it's a t-shirt, whether it's an iPhone case or an iPad case or a sticker or on any different type of apparel that you want to wear and advertise your support for Trek FM, you can do so. So please visit us on redbubble.com, type in Trek FM on your search field there, and it will bring you to all the different designs that he has been able to create for you and for the network. But we have to thank our associate producers most profoundly here because it is from their support through the Patreon program that we're able to do what we do here for you on Standard Orbit. And our two associate producers here for the show are Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm. And Jeff, I'd like to let uh, all of our listeners know a little bit about the Babel Conference, you and I. Even Ken, we're always there posting on a daily basis because that's how we get in touch with all of our fans and all of the great content that's happening there uh, for the network. So if you wouldn't mind letting us or letting the listeners know a little bit more about the Babel Conference and how important it is for them to be able to participate there and share in the fandom. Well, the Babel Conference is a section on Facebook uh, where all of our uh, listeners can get together with the hosts. We all just discuss Star Trek and other science fiction related shows. Uh, we got the 602 Club, so that opens it up wide open for uh, all kinds of discussion. Uh, it's it's a very uh, enjoyable, laid back place where people uh, discuss things. It doesn't get too heated. Uh, things are uh, uh, really, uh, you know, in the concept of Idic uh, on the Babel Conference. Uh, people uh, tend to uh, give each other the benefit of the doubt rather than jumping off the handle and uh, um, getting too carried away. Um, and it's just a lot of fun to, to just relax and talk to people on there and it, it share all kinds of different things about uh, Star Trek that's uh, coming up, especially as we get closer to the release for uh, uh, Star Trek Beyond and the new Star Trek series in 2017. There's been a lot of great content that's actually been shared there on the Babel Conference, and especially with the uh, announcement of Brian Fuller's position as showrunner for 2017. That will be talked about a little bit more on a couple of our 
other shows, especially The Ready Room, which is our flagship show, which is run by our very own network showrunner, Christopher Jones. So please stay tuned for a little bit more information there. There's actually a hyper channel that's just been released with Christopher Jones and Larry Nemechek, uh, who uh, both, they just have such incredible excitement and enthusiasm for what happened this last week, especially with, with Brian Fuller's uh, posting for the new showrunner for 2017. So please check those shows out uh, as they are released on the Babel Conference. There's a variety of different ways that you can get in touch with us, your hosts here on Standard Orbit. So, Ken, thank you for coming back, and, and it's great to have you back here, our chief sound engineer, our chief, wearing the chief hat. That's right. I can't wait to post this on the Babel Conference to show everyone because you look super sharp. I think you wanted to cant that a little bit, though. A little bit more? Um, a little bit more. Yeah, just to, to show uh, a little bit more off-duty. Yeah, there we go. A little bit more 602 Club. So, <laughs> okay. I should so, have had a cigar, um, too, huh? Please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you across the interwebs uh, and be able to share feedback with you on the show or just be able to maybe throw you a couple more Mr. Ataz stumping questions. That's right. Now, for me, it's very simple. You can find me on Facebook and on the Babel Conference. That's where I hang out all the time. To Jeff's point, it's wonderful. I've met so many good friends there. Uh, don't don't hesitate to, to, to friend me, and I am me. Any questions that you have that you think can, can stump Mr. Ataz, and, and that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm, I'm also a, a big contributor through patron of this network. That's right, folks. We do not get paid for this. We pay to do that. That's pretty cool, huh? I got to talk to Chris about that arrangement. And then we also, um, I'm also an associate producer for the network as well. So it's, it's a real uh, pleasure for me to be part of the network and an editor of the show. So thanks for having me. And Jeff, Mr. Ataz, if people want to try and stump you. No, wait, hold on a second. The stumping questions go to Ken. You yes. can't send stumping questions to Mr. Atos because he gets to prep before the show, and that's not fair. You know, so we gotta we gotta make sure that these questions are scrubbed and and, and ready for him for the next episode. But if our listeners want to get in touch with you about anything else regarding Standard Orbit or Star Trek or just to be able to talk to you in general, how can they find you? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavicron or even a Vortex manipulator, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Harlander. I'm a supporter on the network through Patreon, as we've mentioned before. And I'm not only a co-host on uh, Standard Orbit, I'm also a co-host on Warp 5, the dedicated Enterprise podcast. And you can check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek, and that's at trekopedia.com. Did you say Vortex? That is, that is dirty. How dare you bring dirty technology, <laughs> that, that dirty Vortex-manipulating technology onto my show? Well, you know, sometimes you? you're desperate. <laughs> um, and before I get into my credits, I just want to say that we've done a handful of episodes here for Standard Orbit, but for some strange reason, and I think it's just because of the episode itself, this has probably been my favorite so far because Balance of Terror is in the top 10, top five, probably of most lists in the original series because of how good it is. So before I leave you here, I just want to leave and impart this particular sentiment of, of Balance of Terror. You have to watch it. You have to watch this episode. It is about as Star Trek as Star Trek gets for all of the reasons that we've covered in this show. And maybe you'll formulate a few opinions of your own, but please do yourself a favor and either rewatch it if you're an original series fan like Dennis or some of the other, you know, like Robert Womack, who posts on the Babel Conference all the time. Please watch this show because... If you do, you'll get it. You'll understand what the original series is all about. 
If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network, on Trek FM, or on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page, because I post there pretty much daily. You can also find me on Twitter at Starfighter1701. And along with being a host here for Standard Orbit, I am an executive producer on the network, and I am a proud supporter of Trek FM through the Patreon program at patreon.com slash trekfm. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.